1: Hi, everyone. This is Chris Grosso with the Indie Spirituals podcast on the Be Here Now Network. My guest today is Dr. David Hanscom. David, thank you so much for being here with me today. Yeah, thank you. Sure. So uh, I want to read your bio quickly before we jump into this conversation. I'm very excited to have with you. Um you. Short version is that Dr. David Hanscom is a leading orthopedic spine surgeon at the Swedish Neuroscience Institute in Seattle, Washington. Though he believes that surgery and medication have a role, he knows that these standard courses of treatment aren't what's needed to treat chronic pain. Instead, he provides the framework so the patient can find his or her solution, allowing them to live free of pain forever. His method which transforms all kinds of pain, including back, neck, arthritis, fi- fibromyalgia, and migraines, is explained in Back in Control, a surgeon's roadmap out of chronic pain. And so, David, um, you know, there's a little intro I wanted to read uh, besides your bio before we get into this conversation. Um, and it, it, it's basically, it, as a leading spine surgeon that performs back and neck surgeries... You operate only on patients that you are certain will find relief through surgery. And you say there are more unnecessary back surgeries being performed by surgeons now more than ever before. Even since your first book was published three years ago, you say that the medical world is overlooking the fact that in order to relieve pain, the person must get to the root of their pain, anxiety, and the amped up nervous system that accompanies it. Surgery is not always the answer. In fact, in most cases, back and neck surgeries create more pain and problems for the patients because one's nervous system must be calmed down in order to live pain-free. And that is something I personally couldn't agree with more that I've learned firsthand, not that I've dealt with back or neck uh, issues, but just in general healing, you know, in the way that the nervous system plays such an essential role in, like I'd mentioned, anxiety, and creating various stresses and chronic pains. Um, And so, you know, to begin, one of the reasons you revised and reissued your book, Back in Control, was to include the scientific research, which was published after you wrote your first edition. Uh, you, You uncovered studies supporting what you'd seen in your practice, that both physical and emotional pain are equal factors when treating chronic pain. Are you saying that chronic pain is mind over matter and that we can transform our pain by changing our minds?
2: Well, one of the the concepts that's evolving, and there's a lot of neuroscience now to support this, is that thoughts and other physical sensations are processed the same way in the brain. So if you have pleasant physical sensations or pleasant thoughts, why you have oxytocin, dopamine, and the valium-type drugs called GABA drugs. Mm -hmm. And then you feel relaxed, but when you feel relaxed, you're just feeling the chemical surge. And then if you have unpleasant physical sensations that are threats—hot, cold, bad taste, loud sounds, etc.—or unpleasant thoughts, why your body secretes adrenaline, cortisol, and endorphins? And then what happens is you secrete these chemicals, and then you feel anxious. So what anxiety is is that neurochemical response to sensory, unpleasant sensory input.
0: Mm
2: problem that humans have is that we can't escape our thoughts. And so there's this relentless progression of thoughts through a lifetime where you can either suffer with them, which doesn't work, because it gets stronger with repetition, or you can suppress them, which really doesn't work, because research shows that when you try not to think about something, not only do you think about it more, there's a huge trampoline effect where you actually think about it a lot more. Sure. And then pertinent to our topic today is that the other thing that most of us do is, um, you know, is masking, which is some type of addiction, whether it's workaholic, um, gambling, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is, Yeah, is an attempt to sort of mask anxiety. So whether you suppress your suppressor mask, you have this relentless progression of thoughts. And the problem is, when you have this relentless progression of thoughts, then your body is secreting this these stress chemicals and every organ in the body responds in its own way So it turns out that anxiety is the pain. Mm.
1: And so with that, are you, uh, I mean, and we're going to get more into your work, but what's coming to mind is, you know, one of the very big fads in America and, and probably across the nation right now is mindfulness is rooting ourselves back into the body and being here now. Is that something that aside from your, your general work that you advocate for as well as in Dealing with bringing ourselves out of the mind and back into the body.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what mindfulness does, you know, in my book I have four stages, and stage one um, include is basically mindfulness is the starting point. Yeah. And by this, with a little exercise called expressive writing, and what you're doing, what mindfulness does, you're simply switching sensations. In other words, if you have unpleasant thoughts, instead of fighting those and battling those, which actually gives them more power. What you're doing, you're simply switching to, you know, your shoulders dropping down, sitting in the chair. And I have a term, I think it's a, probably cheating a little bit, but I'm a surgeon. I don't have much time. So uh, my term for an abbreviated, abbreviated mindfulness is active meditation. Mm-hmm. Where Just right now, just feel where you're sitting in the chair, you know, listen to some sounds, uh and, and, and it's three to five seconds, you know, multiple times per day. So it's sort of mindfulness on the run, so to speak, even I think, you know, a mindfulness practice is also incredibly valuable too. Sure. So, yeah, no, mindfulness. But So what happens with chronic pain mm. is that everything works at a certain spot. So what mindfulness does, you switch in sensory input and you're decreasing the adrenaline. And remember, anxiety is the adrenaline. Mm. So as you drop down the in- adrenaline, you drop down the anxiety. Then what happens is that as you drop down the adrenaline, The studies, the animal studies show that when you have stress chemicals in your body, your nerve conduction doubles, so you actually feel the pain more, right? Right. So you get this cycle going that's sort of deadly. So as you drop down the adrenaline with the mindfulness, then you improve the nerve conduction and you feel the pain less. So it's not, this is not a psychological issue. You're basically working on the body's chemistry.
1: Yeah. So I like that you said mindfulness kind of on the go because... I, too, have a dedicated practice um I'll be honest, I'm not perfect. I try to do it every day, and I definitely do it more days than not. but there are times where I'm traveling for work, and I just I don't have that you know half an hour to sit and uh and be mindful. but one of the beautiful things I found, which you just alluded to, is for me like even if I'm washing my hands, for example, bringing awareness to the sensation. Of the water hitting my hands, or the smell of the soap, or if I'm riding my skateboard down the road, like being there in that moment on my skateboard um, is a form of mindfulness or meditation for me. Uh, And so I love that you said that because I'll often talk about that with people as well. Uh, A dedicated practice is what brings you deeper, but you know, doing those quick little one two three five minute meditations throughout the day uh just increases at least i find you know the fact that it doesn't mean we don't get lost in our thoughts anymore but we catch ourselves more frequently and there's a buddhist teacher sharon salzberg i love that she she says every time we catch ourselves in thought and come back to the present moment is a moment of what she calls enlightenment and i really like the way she says that you know it's I'm here right now. And and what else is enlightenment except being in the present moment, purely, simply as it is? So, yeah.
2: Well, I honestly think that, you know, I'm a huge fan of Ram Dass Dass and Eckhart Tolle. Sure. And and all those philosophies are absolutely brilliant. But I think the only way you actually can be here in the now, if you look at the neural science of this, is actually to um, allow yourself to feel. Mm -hmm. and so because what happens your brain really people talk about multitasking but really you can only most people can't multitask so if you're tasting your food feeling the water feeling the breeze feeling feeling the steering wheel listening to sounds then your brain's on that sensation and what we actually do we actually teach mindfulness based surgery I I became coached on this about 10 years ago Mm -hmm. and my complication rate dropped about 80% and we teach our fellows this now what happens when you're anxious and frustrated, you just drop your shoulders and go to feel. Okay, so now you're connected to the move, you're connected to the present. Whereas if you go on focus, 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 you have these racing thoughts because, you know, spine surgery is stressful. But as you just drop your shoulders, go to feel, which is a form of mindfulness, of course, then these thoughts just go to the wayside. And what's happened after doing this for 10 years? instead of having thousands of racing thoughts in my head during surgery, I just simply connect to the move. And as you become habituated to the mindfulness, you actually are in the present most of the time. Mm-hmm. So my instead of in a 10 hour surgery, I might have 15 distracting thoughts but I'm so connected to feel every move, every time now. It's unbelievable. Sorry about that. I I had that off. Um, Chris, <laughs> Not Chris, technology works to a computer. I'm really sorry about this. Let me just turn everything off here.
1: It is not a problem. That's part of this podcast. That's what happens, happens.
2: <laughs> but I turned it off. I thought, sorry.
1: No problem.
2: I was not expecting that. Fortunately, we're not live so we can deal with this, right?
1: Yeah. No, I, I actually like I, I always uh, when things like that come up, it's part of uh, imperfection of life. So I kinda keep this podcast totally raw. And uh, so that no worries. Just hop okay. right back into what you're saying.
2: Anyway, so the bottom line is I hit many years ago so I I but here's a really, really key factor to the process I outline in my book yeah. is that I tell my patients when the kind of seminars is that the first thing is that you are not here to get rid of your pain. Okay, number one, because if your goal is to get rid of the pain, your pain's still running the show. And as you know, with meditation and mindfulness, the key issue is is to be with the pain, and the pain starts to lose its power. So the the corollary of that is that you can't fix yourself because, again, using neuroscience and neuroplasticity, where the brain can change by the second, your brain will develop or replace its attention. So if your attention's on yourself, it's like putting your hand right into a hornet's nest, your attention's on yourself. Mm-hmm. So these reactive anxiety, frustration, survival patterns, and adrenaline. If you want to dive into that and analyze it, you're actually reinforcing it. So the key process to do this, so first of all, de-adrenalize through mindfulness is really key, Yeah. but it's what I call a reprogramming tool. So there's three parts to stimulating neuroplasticity, with the first part being something you're well familiar with, is awareness, right. and the second part is separation, and the third part is redirecting. So... What happens, there's a research tool that has been incredibly simple. It's been researched in over three or 400 research papers now. You simply write down your thoughts, and you tear them up. And it's there's a bunch of forms of doing that. My first book talking about negative thoughts. It does not have to be negative thoughts. It could be negative or positive, rational or irrational. Sure. And I was in chronic pain myself for 15 years, and that one simple tool was the first thing that broke up the circuits. It was unbelievable. Within two weeks, things started to shift, and by six months, I was pain-free after 15 solid years. Nice. And I had everything, with the last seven of these years being unspeakable. So all my patients have gotten better. we watched hundreds of patients go to pain-free. The, the, the is not the solution, but it's the one necessary step because you create an awareness of the thoughts, You've now separated, that space is now connected with vision and feel, then you redirect. So when you combine the mindfulness with that simple writing exercise, then things start to happen in a huge way. Mm -hmm. If you're using the mindfulness to keep combating these circuits, the problem is that the unconscious brain is a million times stronger than the conscious brain, and you can't win. So same thing with meditation. If you're using meditation to combat pain, you're done. Um, but if you use it as a redirecting calming down tool, it's actually a very powerful re- redirecting tool. So the key part of this process is becoming aware and separating. What doesn't work is positive thinking, because positive thinking, of course, is a way of suppressing negative thinking. It's right. always asking to be happy about the pain. So the correlate of that is, which I think you'll understand a bit, is that there's a bunch of concepts with one of, one of them not being able to fix yourself But the second one is you become comfortable with uncomfortable feelings. In other words, you become, you're you're okay with being in pain. Because if you fight the pain, you're going to reinforce it. As you learn to be with it, then it sort of goes away. And people forget that the mental and physical input go to the same part of the brain as far as the unpleasant, unpleasant interpretation of the sensory input. The chemical response is the same. So even though you get rid of your physical pain you're not gonna get rid of mental pain because you're gonna live your life, otherwise otherwise you'd be unconscious, right? right. So it, it turns out that the physical pain is less of a problem than the anxiety. People can't tolerate relentless anxiety. It just drives them to the ground.
1: Sure.
2: So then they found out that when you suppress unpleasant thoughts, it's a direct link to opioid addiction.
1: Mm.
2: And so that that correlation is now been established. But the other thing is when you suppress thought, it actually damages the hippocampus of your brain, which is the memory center, both short-term and long-term memory center. And then, of course, when you suppress thoughts, you think about these thoughts more. So you end up in this endless progression of thoughts that if you combine the writing – anyway, the first stage, if you combine the writing exercises with the mindfulness, that to me is the essence of stage one, where you're just simply separating, calming down, redirecting, and, of course, it's a baseline foundational tool, so I use it all the time every day. I write every day. And I also find out if I quit doing my writing exercises, which is about three to five minutes, once or twice a day, that in about three weeks, my symptoms come back. And I had over 16 symptoms of an adrenalized nervous system. So I had rain in my ears, migraine headaches, itching scalp, skin rashes popping up, burning in my feet, stomach issues, back issues, neck pain, extreme anxiety, depression, couldn't sleep. I mean, the list went on for me. And I was so miserable for so long. So if I quit doing the writing, in about two or three weeks, all of a sudden, these skin rashes pop up in the back of my wrist. Or all of a sudden, they start scratching my scalp. And my wife's been with me through the whole process. (laughs) And she does the writing, I do the writing, my whole family does the writing exercises. And for her, if she quits writing, she starts starts getting asthma. And again, the writing has been shown to have a very direct effect on physical symptoms, including asthma and also autoimmune disorders. Sure. So there's something about this simple writing exercise I call it mechanical, med- mechanical meditation where you have an awareness and separation and then you redirect and of course in meditation you have an awareness and separation and redirect the problem is if you're really trapped by chronic pain it's really hard to break through those original circuits with, with meditation alone even though it's possible you have to be pretty highly skilled to do that right. and most of my patients can't do that and, and that includes myself, I just cannot pull that one off
1: Sure so let me recap this and and bring it into another context. Um, prior to us starting this conversation, we had a, our own brief conversation. And you know, you'd ask me what brought me to what I do today. And I mentioned essentially it was an addiction to drugs and alcohol. So for bringing that, let's use that as an example with this writing practice and meditation you're talking about. Um, I'm assuming it's essentially the same thing. Um, I take, like you said, three to five minutes, twice a day, write out whatever thoughts I'm having, whether they're good or or bad, quote unquote, good or bad. Um, and then simply tear them up. And as well, as long as I'm also incorporating the meditation practice, I should begin to see, uh, those, even though I'm in recovery and, and not actively using, um, I should see, or let's say somebody is actively using, they yeah. should begin to see results by using that practice. Is am I hearing you correctly? Yeah,
2: absolutely. I mean, people just come in. I can tell within about ten seconds whether somebody's been writing or not. And I have a, I do seminars, yeah. workshops. I'm doing one next summer in New York. Yeah. And I had a guy come from Toronto who who was recently out. Of, he's been clean for about eight months has been relapsed three, four times, she's 33 years old. And what happened is that, the thing with, and this is where I need to ask you some questions. Yeah. So I've had lots of success having people with hundreds and hundred milligrams, of, I mean one person 1,500 milligrams of oxycodone a day, wow. another person 800, another person 1,000 a day, come off all drugs, no pain, no medications. But they do it themselves, they keep control, but as their anxiety drops, then the pain drops, because remember, You drop the anxiety, you improve body chemistry. Right, they just don't want the drugs, and then the side effects start outweighing the benefits. So, from my perspective, pulling people off medications has never been a problem because I don't do it. Yeah, and what doctors don't realize, including myself historically, is that nobody really wants to be on drugs, any drugs, particularly opioids. Right, even people who are are in addiction don't like to be on drugs. I mean, who wants to be at the mercy of something that you can't control, right? right? Right, and so. I've learned a lot in the trenches. Right now, 40% of my entire spine practice is dealing with people with infected spines from drug addiction issues. They use, use IV drugs, then the bacteria lodges in the spine, and the destruction that the infection causes causes in the spine is unbelievable. These are really big, nasty operations. And I have an endless number of people between 20 and 35 that are just absolutely having their lives destroyed. First of all, the infection's a problem. Then it goes to the heart valves. Then it embolizes to the brain. So that's a problem. So from a medical, physical standpoint, the addiction issue is horrible. Oh, yeah. To, of course, take care of these patients before and after the surgery. And as you know, when you're that deep in the hole with the drugs, it just takes incredibly promising lives and completely destroys them. Yes. So I talked to them. This is why I want to ask you the question is they said, look, you know, Correct me if I'm wrong, you know, I had extreme anxiety myself, as a spine, and I didn't get there by being, I didn't become a spine to by having anxiety, I became one by suppressing it, but the driving force that I have been able to ascertain for most of these people that are addicted to drugs is trying to escape the anxiety. Right. Is, is that a fair statement?
1: Yeah, well, uh, and again, as I said earlier, I can only speak on my behalf, um, but I also work with a lot of people that struggle with addiction. And the huge the the two major issues are depression and anxiety. And in my own case, um I can deal with the physical pain. I'm not a fan of it, I can deal with it. But when that anxiety comes up and then the panic starts to come up and then in some occasions it turns into a full blown panic attack, um, forget about it. That is I wouldn't wish that on anyone. I that and um Luckily, I have not dealt with depression for several years, but, um, or heavy depression at least, but there were times where I was, you know, really caught in very heavy depression. And, you know, accompanied by that is anxiety. And the way out for me, for me, opioids were usually not my drug of choice. It was alcohol, though I have abused everything under the sun. Uh, But regardless, you know, it was still an escape. And what I was looking to escape from was that anxiety, that depression, that emptiness. Um, so I think that's a very fair statement to to make. And and from the people that I've worked with, it seems like that's the majority. I mean, of course, there's family issues, legal issues. I mean, there's a myriad of things that also contribute to people using. But I would say, um, in my experience, probably the number one reason is anxiety that is it's horrible you know absolutely horrible and it's not just drugs or alcohol you know that's not the only way people cope with it sex shopping gambling food um i've struggled with food addictions in the past um anything to take me out of that anxiety even though i know it's going to be short-lived but you know it, it even if it helps for five minutes it takes me out of that anxiety for five minutes and it's worth it. Well, I mean, not really worth it, but I can tell you what I have found and I'm looking forward to trying your writing um, exercise because I've never, I mean, I, I'm, I am a writer by nature, but I've never done that kind of writing with just my thoughts and ripping them up. Right. But um, what I have found, and I feel very blessed because I don't want to take medication either, is that my regimen, and again, I don't advocate one thing over another, I think it is a highly individualized recovery process for each person, but I find that if I do have that dedicated meditation practice, if I am exercising, you know, I have some kind of cardio, I don't personally do asana yoga, but I know a lot of people swear by that, and it works for them, but for me, it's meditation, running, you know, helping other people service work. And I do some meetings too. And, and that works. I have not been perfect. I've had relapses through the years. Um, but that's also because I pulled back from those things. I'm introverted by nature. So, um, I have tendencies, unfortunately, to pull back and isolate. And, uh, if I'm living alone in an apartment, not reach out to people, but, anyways, that's a lo- very long-winded answer to say, uh, say yes. I agree with you on that anxiety point. Absolutely.
2: Well, you brought up about ten different topics, and every one of them <laughs> sort of important. So I'm not, I'm trying to figure out how to um not take people too many different directions here at once. Sure, so, I understand. First of all, what I found out I was an extreme depression for about eight years. Solid. It was it was a suicidal depression. Sure. But what I finally realized at some point, what actually drives a depression is anxiety. And the first clue is that everybody with anxiety doesn't have depression, but everybody with depression has anxiety. Mm. Then the first symptom of a depression is you wake up early in the morning, and can't go back to sleep. Well, that's usually anxiety. Then you can't go to sleep because you have these racing thoughts that keep you awake. And then, of course, you get some physical sensations like a racing heart and beating chest and stuff like that. So then you can't sleep very well because you can't fall asleep or you wake up too early. So then you quit concentrating, and then you just start losing your energy because you're just not sleeping tired. So right there, you already have a mild to moderate depression, and mine became extreme. Then I went on into a full-blown, which was called obsessive-compulsive disorder, which is extreme anxiety manifested by repetitive, intrusive thoughts that become almost visual. And so you try wrist snapping techniques, exposure therapy, all sorts of stuff, and it didn't work. It was unbelievable. So again, that's what I said earlier in the program, and it's a statement that it probably is worth spending some time with in the future because it's, it's not easy. Yeah. Mind over matter actually doesn't work, but it's, just, it's a learned skill. Is that I call it the ring of fire? Is that if you just picture a ring with the with three rings, the outside ring is blue, which is, are are the things we do to stay happy. And, you know, activities and friends and family, whatever we do, experiences. Then the middle ring, the red ring, is fear, anxiety, and anger. Then the red ring is, the middle ring is where you talk about be here now and be centered in in the present. That's the green ring. So what I did for my first, I had a very abusive childhood. So I spent the first, until about age 15 years old, I simply shut the door on my very abusive life and just created a David Hanscom. I was smart, athletic, all these different things. But there's but a way of staying out of the red ring, which I didn't even know existed because that's the way I was raised. So we spent all this energy trying to avoid the red ring. And then I just got stripped down and went right in right through the red ring and red ring into the center because I had no choice. I was just in the middle looking around. Going, what do I do now? Yeah. And then I realized that to try a new activity or meet new friends does take dealing with fear and anxiety. Right. right. So everything. So you had to pass through that red ring every day. So it becomes a learned skill to allow yourself to feel anxious and frustrated, whatever you want to call it. And as you learn to be with unpleasant feelings and start de-adrenalizing the nervous system, it's not a problem. They, they, so as you use those circuits in areas of your, areas of your brain less, they start losing their power because they atrophy. And as you start nurturing, then the other part of the conversation first of all, you've actually done most of the website. I mean, if you look at what you just described, you pretty much covered my whole project, which is great. But there's a couple subtle details. Writing is the one foundational step, it's not the solution, because if you just write, write, and write, you're trying to solve it by controlling something. Mm. So the reason why you have the piece of paper is for two reasons. One is to write with freedom, but the other one is to not analyze the thoughts, because they're just thoughts. It's only a separation process, if you want to analyze these thoughts, you actually give them power, right? So it's a simple exercise. There's all sorts of other writing that you can do, but it's just a separation process. And again, the idea is to not analyze them. So what happens is that you now have a stress, and anytime you have stress, by definition, it's a threat, whether it's a mental stress or physical stress, and your body's increasing stress chemicals. So what the writing does, and what meditation and mindfulness do, gives you a little bit of a space to become aware. Okay, here's the stress, here's my reaction. Reaction is always adrenaline. And then in that little bit of a space, you start substituting. And you take a deep breath, drop your shoulders, do mindfulness, and with that repetition, your brain starts to actually create new different pathways. You actually reconstruct your brain. And With the current research, you actually, actually can see these pain pathways form, and then watch them reform. Mm. So then you talk about giving back, is that you can't solve chronic pain, you can't solve anxiety, But you separate and move away from it. So on the stage four part of my process is giving back. You know, service to other people, good food, good wine, good friends, spiritual perspective. Whatever way you want to frame that area, as you develop this new part of your brain or reconnect with it, then you start separating from the anxiety pathways and they start to drop down. Mm -hmm. So that's where that writing is not the solution. It's just a simple foundational step. And I'll have to say it's the one step that's made the biggest difference. If people don't start the writing, they can, of course, we make a lot of progress. But the people I'm looking at really are going to pain free, anxiety drops, creativity comes back, and they're so excited. Right. So, um, so yeah, what you just described in those in that five minutes was essentially the whole project.
1: Hmm. Well, okay started sorry to steal your thunder there yeah. <laughs> you no know, I'm excited I mean I' like
2: it when people I mean you did you've done it so and the, let me say one quick thing here yeah. um, the way you solve chronic pain is be aware of the issues second part is you you address every aspect at the same time and the metaphor I use is, is like fighting a forest fire every strategy counts so everything works in chronic pain but nothing works in isolation. Then the third part is you take complete control of your own care, and that's the biggest key. If somebody doesn't take complete charge of their situation and you know know this in recovery, we don't take complete responsibility, then you have no chance at this.
1: Right, right. Very well said. You know, and something else that I wanted to definitely talk to you about, um, because it's something I know I've struggled with and uh, I'm sure many of the listeners have as well, Is that um, I know something you're interested in discussing is how chronic pain, it doesn't only affect ourselves, but our loved ones, you know, especially our family members. So can you tell me a little bit about what you've learned about that and how we can work with that and and maybe rebuild uh, relationships that have been uh, damaged because of this?
2: Well, what I'm finding out this last eighteen months has been really stunning, profound, exciting, disturbing, whatever whatever you want to call it. Because the sure. family is probably the biggest factor in keeping people in pain, and it's also can be the biggest factor in pulling people out of pain. Yeah. So human consciousness developed by interacting through language and interacting with other humans. That's how we develop human consciousness. And of course, human consciousness is a mystery. I'm not going to try to pretend to solve it today, but Sure. We, we develop by interacting with other people, and our closest relationships, of course, are with our family. So I didn't realize until I put on these workshops that people talk about their pain a lot and they simply wear out their family. And people just get really tired of hearing about the pain. They, first of all, don't want to see level and suffer. Second of all, there's nothing they can do. And so they feel frustrated and helpless. So that's one problem. The second issue is that people in chronic pain are very frustrated, they're angry, they're trapped. And anytime you're trapped by anything, you're going to be angry and frustrated, which really adrenalizes the nervous system and makes the pain worse. So people in chronic pain can be abusive. And so the essence of abuse is being unaware of other people's needs. Mm -hmm. And when you're in pain and focused on yourself, you lose that awareness and the potential for abuse becomes very, very high, including just simple verbal abuse. You know, it doesn't have to be physical abuse. People forget just being critical and snappy at your family is is abusive
1: absolutely
2: so the anger plays out in the family in a pretty devastating way the other thing called mirror neurons is that when you smile at a baby the reason the baby smiles back is because you stimulated that part of the brain the, the smiling center mm. so if a person comes home in a bad mood then i ask this to, to my couples all the time so look if your partner's in a bad mood what's your day like? And of course they just drop their shoulders and groan and vice versa. But it's not psychological, you've just stimulated that part of the other person's brain. So the conversation I just put up on my website this week is called Healing Begins at Home. So let's pretend you're in my office and you're with your partner. I said look, the first thing I want you to do is that every adult member in the family participate in the project. I want them to look at the website, I want them to read the book, I want them to start the exercises that are outlined, number one, so everybody's involved. Number two, when you walk out this door, you will never discuss your pain again with anybody ever. Done. No exceptions, especially your family. And a lot of people go, look at me, they honestly say, well, what do we talk about? Well, again, that's what I'm saying. Your brain gets sucked into this abyss of pain, and you're you're really reinforcing those pathways, right? Yeah. So I said, look, I want you to put up a 10-foot wall between you about medical care, about your pain. Whatever you has to do with your pain comes off the table. So when you walk out the door, and, and I say to the partner, I said, look, if you're having a bad day at work, don't bring that home either. Don't complain. Mm-hmm. So then I said, on your way home, I want you to spend the entire time in the car and discuss the most enjoyable part of your relationship. When was it fun? Because as you know, in chronic pain, it sort of crushes out a lot of the fun, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not a positive thinking thing, but what I'm trying to do is wake up the part of the brain that you just discussed about giving back and waking up play pathways, which are also permanent, and just nurturing and waking up up that part of the brain. But the critical part is is to say when you go home, you make a decision, the time you're anxious, or frustrated, or angry, you're in a reactive survival pattern that's not rational, and the unconscious brain is a million times stronger than the conscious brain, So you can't talk this stuff out. And we all know that you never solve anything in an argument. You might as well just take baseball bats and hit each other. anger is destructive. Instead, you make a decision that you're gonna make your house a safe house. In other words, you're never gonna argue or fight in the house, ever. Just take it outside. So as you create a space on this planet that's safe, again, your adrenaline levels drop, your stress chemicals drop, you relax, the reward chemicals come back into play and then once you get out of this crisis mode, it usually takes about two to four weeks. Then I suggest family meetings and say, look, like if you get if you get into an argument or a fight, either or both people need to just break, just stop it. It's like in a boxing match, two two fighters are you know got each other clenched in a hold. You just have to break, done, because it's not rational stuff that you can actually talk it out. So that's been the most exciting part of this thing because what's happening now is that the family uses are real. And couples are the strongest triggers for each other. And it's really had a profound effect in my practice, practice. The people coming out of the home much more consistently, but also much more quickly. But they're also excited because they have some potential, actually, to thrive as a couple in a household because you're in these reactive survival patterns. You don't know why they're occurring. You're building a life together. I also wrote a, a website post called Happily Ever After. What blows relationships apart is it's a neurological trick. So I list a bunch of those, and we talk about that later. But the essence of this solution is that you just create a structure around anxiety and anger, which, again, react to survival patterns, and you just pull it out of your household. And it's absolutely magical. We've had the best time with us.
1: Well, I would love if you could elaborate a little on that, because I cannot tell you how many couples, I was just having this conversation, actually, with a friend the other day, how many couples, it seems they're still together. Because even though they're unhappy, it's familiar. And it's, you know, there's comfort and familiarity. Um, And they would rather stick with that than, you know, be uncomfortable. And whether it's go to therapy or just call it, you know, it's not working. We need to separate. So if you could elaborate a little bit on that, I would, uh, I think that'd be great for listeners.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm convinced everybody fights. Mm -hmm. I mean. Pretend that they don't, or people say, "Well, we don't fight." Well, the reason why they're not fighting is because they're actually not talking to each other. Sure. I mean, actually, human beings trigger each other. So, what happens is that when you're triggered, then you want to blame the other person who just upset you, right? Right. Okay, but all the other person did was was trigger a, trigger a neurological response in you. In other words, I'm in in the room with this with a couple, and the. Wife might say something that totally sets off her husband. To me, of course, it means nothing. So, is it her or is it him? So it's him. So, so the thing is, what happens is there's two books that really make the game change in stage two. First of all, on stage three, step to my website. You can look at it up very easily. It says healing begins at home, and I have about ten website posts in growing about how this process plays out in the house. So again, anxiety and anger are arbitrary. You elect simply not to engage in those exercises and you just take it out of the house. And so if you're triggered by a given situation, there's a situation, then there's a reaction. And there's a book called The Way to Love by Anthony DeBell, one of the most famous thinkers of all time. And he points out really, really clearly is that when you're triggered or upset, you actually get to learn to think the person who triggered you because they tell you who you are. Mm. And then the other thing that starts to happen once you realize that you're in this pattern, you quit labeling your partner. And the other thing that happens is as both people go through the process, the mirror neurons process works both ways, is that I said, because first of all, one person gets into this mode, well, I I really want to help my partner. I can't see them in pain. I said, look, the best thing you can do for your partner is to actually get happy. Because with the mirror neurons effect, then you actually get to stimulate that part of their brain too. So you're pulling them out of the pain pathways. If you're asking and monitoring the pain, of course, your attention is on the pain. But pain comes into the household. And it's just like a huge, dark, black, dense fog that's just indescribable. But once people understand this basic anxiety and anger, by the way, are the same thing. So remember the antidote to anxiety is control. When we lose control, your body kicks in adrenaline and, you, and then you become angry. It's a survival response. So once you understand that anxiety and anger are reactive survival patterns, that when somebody upsets you, it's 100% new. Again, this is the hardest part of the project. I still feel like it's my wife. By the way, my wife and I get to do this too. So all of us struggle with being triggered. And, again, our, our families are the biggest triggers. So it's mother-daughters, father-sons, you know, spouses, parents, grandparents. Older parents are very difficult sometimes. Mm. And so as I looked under the hood, now – several hundred times in a family situation everybody has this problem people pretend they're this this happy couple but everybody has this this is a universal human problem that people trigger each other and of course you know neurons that fire together wire together so when you're triggered people say well why is there a surgeon talking about family issues well the problem is from the neuroscientist standpoint is that neurons that fire together wire together so when you're angry and frustrated, those are connected to pain pathways. And there's another research paper where it shows that when people are triggered, their pain goes up. And, and it, the research was done on 105 couples in a family situation is that one person would grab their back or the neck and groan. Then the, other, then the spouse would predictably have a hostile response because maybe the spouse doesn't even believe the person's in pain. And then they monitor the person in pain. Of course, the pain went through the ceiling when their spouse had the hostile response. So my sense is that people that are living in homes run by chronic pain is pretty darn visible. Mm.
1: Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, that's, uh, it sounds like invaluable information on your website, which I don't believe I mentioned in the beginning, um, www.backincontrol.com. And that's where they can find uh, the information you were just speaking about. Is that correct?
2: Right. So what I I do with patients, let's say you're in my office. They look, um, the books on Amazon or different bookstores on Audible or otherwise or Kindle. Sure. But I want you to go to the website first and simply start stage one. And there's five steps. First step is, you know, learn about pain, which they'll learn over time. The second one is start the expressive writing this afternoon. Just start the writing ripping it up. And again, I look at both houses of the couple and say, I want both of you doing this. You have to do this. Because it's a huge part of the treatment plan. The third thing I say, look, start the active meditation on the way to the car. Just listen to your footsteps, feel the breeze, whatever. And then the fourth thing, which we haven't mentioned before, is sleep. We have found out that the research shows that lack sleep actually induces chronic pain. Yeah. Then step five, which again, has been incredibly powerful, we didn't realize how powerful this would be, is simply never share your pain. Yeah. And that's, in that way, I didn't really, I started that about five years ago. I didn't really link it into the economy situation until about 18 months ago. But invariably, there's the biggest sigh of relief in the spouse that you can imagine. It's, I mean, the, people in chronic pain talk about the pain all the time, but then your attention's on the pain pathways and you're know, reinforcing them, right? Right. So it's really a huge switch, but it's it's like a bucket of ice water over your head. It's just a real jolt in a reality. And guess what? My life's I'm not my pain. I mean, people become their pain, and they forget what it's like to be a person again, and so it really jolts into reality of, you know, getting on with their regular life. Right.
1: Now, you mentioned sleep. I wanted to talk a minute about that with you. Because, um, you know, you hear different people say, you need this amount of sleep, that amount of sleep. Um, what's Do you have uh, any recommendations, or what's your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I wrote an article back in 2011 for a National Spine Journal on sleep. And basically, there's a misnomer that adults need less sleep than kids. Yeah. And that's actually not true. Adults get used to getting by without sleep, and then they sort of are used to it and think that it's normal. But adults need seven or eight hours a night, period. And, I mean, kids may need eight or nine, but um, adults also need seven or eight hours per night. There's chapter 14 in my book where I go through eight steps of what you can do to get to sleep. And five of those are self-directed, and then at stage six you start get, starting getting into prescription medications but I'm really clear all the way throughout the book that if you're not sleeping, this entire conversation that we just had is actually null and void because you're not going to counteract that. Right. And so I would say probably over half the time to get the sleep process started. It, it probably takes medications from your primary care position to get that started.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I, well, what I've noticed personally is I definitely try to get at least seven hours myself, but if I get five or less, um, and again, I try to do better, uh, right away when i wake up and then throughout the rest of the day i will have at least a low level of anxiety and yep. it will come and go in waves it will get worse um and it will be with me all day and it's terrible um and it's simply from a lack of sleep Noth- not from what i'm eating i eat healthy i work out but if i don't get that proper amount of sleep forget about it i wake up and it's just Anxiety City from the from the get go and uh, and it sucks it sucks.
2: You know, here for this, I mean, I'd love to do this interview in about six weeks after you jump into the website, and start the writing. I think you'll have a remarkable experience. I mean, you, you have see what happens with somebody like yourself. If you're in my office, you're sort of a dream patient because you you know you get some pain issues. You've done a huge amount of work, and what what I think is that you you'll find out with the book and the website it allow you create again a structure. The break's painted into different parts. Mm. Then you can see the different parts in relationship to each other, and then you know why you're doing what. So knowing why you're intervening makes a huge difference. Mm. So the fun part by far and away is people's anxiety drops through the floor. Yeah. Then it's, it almost becomes a non-issue after a while. And again, you don't get rid of anxiety or fix it because you're going to reinforce it. This is a paradoxical process where you actually train your brain to be comfortable with these unpleasant stimuli and there's, again, a bunch of ways of doing that. Again, positive thinking doesn't work. And, um, for instance, with sleep. You know, the right exercises have been shown how people get to sleep. So it's all linked together in lots of different ways. So, you know, it'd be fun. I'd love to get your um, input after you've been at this for six or eight weeks and then have a, a discussion about what you learned. And, I, and I'd love to uh, – I think mm, listeners get the most – out of these podcasts when i can sort of coach almost online in a way and then then it's real-time stuff if you're up for that so yeah that'd be exciting
1: yeah that'd be great we'll have to connect definitely like uh sometime in the early new year uh, and have a follow-up that's wonderful um well i know we're starting to run short on time i mean there's a million more things we could cover i feel like we've really covered a, r- a lot of ground already which is wonderful um i wanted to ask david is there's something that we haven't touched on yet that you would like to share with listeners that you feel could benefit them or just a particular passion um any any or any event i mean really anything you would like to leave our listeners with
2: well, I mean, there's lots of philosophical things to consider, but the concept I'd like you to visually understand is that all of are trying to fix yourselves and become better people, right? There's lots of self-improvement around, yeah. And so it's like climbing this huge mountain, and at the top of the mountain, at the top of the mountain, there's a better you, right? Yeah. But as we all know, there's no top to this mountain, right? So it takes a lot of energy. You keep climbing, 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 and you just can't get there. So, the process is doing as you become comfortable with uncomfortable feelings. It's like cutting strings to a bunch of balloons tied to a railing, and pretty soon you just take off and you, you just are. Mm. And it takes no energy to do that. So, all this life energy you spend trying to solve unsolvable problems also is free to actually live your life. So, it's a very freeing experience. So, I would suggest a couple of things to the, to the listeners. They simply just start the expressive writing. If you never read my book, never did anything besides that one exercise, your life will change. The second thing is that you can't fix yourself. You're letting go. Again, the bunch of the bunch of balloon analogies is a big deal, but also I suggest there's a website post I put up called "She Just Let Go," and one of my patients sent me this poem about six months ago, and it's just about letting go, just give up, enjoy the day. Mm-hmm. As you let go, you quit reacting to things, you quit reacting to things with so much energy, and life changes. And again, your mindfulness is one of those basic tools that's big, and it takes lots of tools to do that. But the bottom line is, you're not fixing yourself, you're just enjoying the day with what you have, whatever that is.
1: Yeah. Well, that's beautiful, David. I appreciate that. I appreciate your time. The name of the book is called Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. Um, I love the fact that you have some endorsements from people like Bruce Lipton and Bernie Siegel who are obviously highly celebrated individuals in this field. Um, So, you know, that just adds, you know, I don't want to say more validity, but it's nice, you know, to to see them supporting your work. And the website for listeners is uh, www.backincontrol.com. If you're checking this out online at the Be Here Now Network, um, we'll have a write-up of this podcast highlighting uh, what David and I spoke about, as well as his website, uh, where you can connect with him. And, David, the book is available not only on your website, but through Amazon and Barnes & Noble, I'm assuming, other places? Yep. Perfect. Well, David, I thank you so much for your time. Um, It's been a real pleasure, a very insightful conversation, and one that I'm absolutely sure our listeners will get a lot out of. So, thank you for Sharing, I'm sure, just the tip of the iceberg of your wealth of knowledge and experience.
2: Yeah, thanks. John. I really enjoyed this. You, you know, your insights are remarkable. And so this is, this is great. I, I really enjoyed that.
1: Well, thank you, David. I look forward to connecting with you again soon in the future after uh, I've worked with this material for a while. Sounds good. All right. Take good care, David. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
0: If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/slash/be here now today to get ten percent off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. dot slash be here now.